bed rest or high risk pregnancy or anything like that. And so I felt like I was the only person in the world to ever experience something like this. So once I started my blog and my Instagram and started kind of putting my story out there into the universe, I was able to connect with other women. Hey everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of Entering Motherhood, a podcast dedicated specifically to new moms going through this amazing journey in life. I'm your host, Sarah Bilger, a postpartum nutritional coach slash mechanical engineer. And as always, I'm so excited to be here with you and share all the information I've been lucky enough to obtain since becoming a mom. In this episode, we talk with Courtney about her journey of developing preeclampsia, recovering from a cesarean, and all the emotions that came postpartum. Hello and welcome to Entering Motherhood and I'm happy to have you here and to hear your story and what your postpartum period was like and so if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about you and then if you want to jump into your birth story and and continue with that and if I have any questions, I'll intervene but if not, I'm excited to hear your story and just hear what you have to say. Yeah, uh, my name is Courtney. I run the blog Knock on Motherhood and also the Instagram. Um, my husband and I also have a podcast of our own called Knock on Parenthood. Um, I am, my daughter is almost two. And so I had her about two years ago next month. And my journey to motherhood was quite different. My pregnancy was really normal until it wasn't. I was in my last semester of college when I first got pregnant with my now daughter. Uh, Beforehand, I had a few miscarriages. And I just was really sick and really nauseous like everyone I feel like typically is during the first trimester. But I graduated at at 13 weeks pregnant, almost 14. And then I just transitioned into a full-time position I found at a credit union. My husband was still in school. He had about a year left give or take. Um, And at about 32 weeks, I went to a doctor's appointment and they were like, your blood pressure is getting a little high. We're going to have you start taking your blood pressure at home morning and night and just record and keep a log for us. And if it ever gets above 140 over 90, either go straight into L&D or come into the office. And they didn't really tell me the significance of that number or why. I was like, whatever, this is just something I have to do, you know, another thing I have to do. So about a week later, so I was going on to 32 weeks, 33 weeks. I hit that number right before I went to work on a Friday. So I calmed down and I took my blood pressure again and I hit 140 over 90 again. So then I called my husband. He had already left to his job, let him know that I was going into the office I called my parents and let them know because I had told them I had to keep track of my blood pressure. And then I head straight into the office. And I waited there for like two or three hours till I was seen because I didn't have an appointment. And it was a Friday and they're really busy on Fridays. So once I got there, I ended up seeing a doctor I hadn't seen before. The way that my practice was is that they had you see all the doctors in the practice at least once. Because whoever was on call was who delivered your baby. So they wanted you to kind of know everyone. So the doctor I ended up meeting that I hadn't met yet ended up being the MFM, which is the maternal fetal 
medicine doctor. So he runs like all the high risk pregnancies and things like that. And so he took my blood pressure with the cuff a couple of times. He took it manually a couple of times, telling me to calm down, think of like my favorite vacation spot and just trying to settle me down. But I just kept hitting that number over and over and over again. And he asked me if I was complaining of headaches, if I was seeing spots, if I was having, you know, upper abdominal pain. And I wasn't. It was just straight up blood pressure. I was swollen and I had, you know, shared that with my doctors previously. But there's like, that's just normal where, you know, compression socks and it'll be fine. Because it was also coming up on May, which is a little bit warmer too. So he sent me home basically like... You come in again on Monday. We're going to keep close eye on you. I think you have gestational hypertension. Just keep looking out for, you know, these symptoms and such. And my doctor just kept reminding my husband, make sure she knows she wasn't overreacting. Like, it's a good thing she came in. So I went in the following Monday. They had a bunch of ultrasounds. I took the NSTs, took a ton of blood work. Um, Also, they collected my urine a ton of times. And that was when I started starting to spill protein into my urine. And so one time I went to an appointment and then they sent me straight to the hospital. Um, I wasn't allowed to drive myself to the hospital, even though it was just around the corner from my doctor's office. I had to call my husband and have him. We only had one car at the time. So he had to run over from his job, which was about a mile, mile, half away to the doctor's office to come and drive me to the hospital because my blood pressure was really high. And I wasn't on any medication yet. They hadn't put me on any medication. And I was spilling a ton of protein, so they wanted to run a 24-hour protein urine analysis. So I go to the hospital, and they put all the things on me, like the monitors for her heart rate, the monitors for contraction. They put a blood pressure cuff on me and everything like that. And anytime I needed to pee, they would have me go to the bathroom, and they put into this bucket that kind of looks like an upside-down hat into the toilet and then I had to pee into that. But because I was on the LND floor, if nurses weren't always on top of em- emptying that bucket out, it became my husband's job to empty that bucket into an even larger bucket. Like that is true love is puring your spouse's urine. And so they did that and it was supposed to be only a 24 hour stay, but end up turning into a three day stay because my blood pressure just wouldn't settle down. Um, And when they told me it was going to be longer than that, I just, I broke down crying because I just kept telling myself, oh, it's only 24 hours and then I can go home and I can process everything that happens. I can cry as much as I want because I'm not the kind of person that likes to cry in front of people. That has since changed from then. But at the time I was very much just, you know, what's going on. It was only 33 weeks. I turned 33 weeks during that hospital stay. And they didn't really tell me a whole much of what was going on. Um, they did tell me that they gave me the diagnosis of mild preeclampsia. And what they would do is they would just monitor me and just I would have a ton of appointments. And they released me on strict bed rest with bathroom privileges. So I had to quit my job unexpectedly. And I just sat at home basically waiting for <laughs> my world to end. So once I got released, it was really lonely couple like a week um and I just kept having random spikes in my blood pressure and they kept upping my dosage of all. they scheduled me for three doctor's appointments that week but each time I had to go in randomly because I would call the on-call nurse because my blood pressure would spike 
They would have me come in. They'd have me do anesthesia. They'd have me do ultrasounds to check on my amniotic fluid and her growth um, because she was falling behind in growth. So, and then eventually one day I go to the an appointment and they send me straight to the hospital. I was 35 weeks and three days. And they say, my doctor said, you're having this baby today. You can't go home and pick up stuff. You have to go straight to the hospital. This is, you know, you, you need to go. You have to have it. And the reason he kind of made that decision, even though I wasn't complaining of headaches or anything like that, was my blood pressures were so high. And the day before, I had an outpatient visit at the hospital because it was Memorial Day. They wanted me to have NST, and the hospital was the only one who could do that. And during that NST, I was having consistent contractions. Although I didn't feel it, to me, it just felt like she was moving around in my belly because she was a really active kid in the uterus. So, and then he had checked me and I was already three to four centimeters dilated. And so when I got to the hospital, they hooked me up to everything. I got hooked up to magnesium. They put on the monitors, the contraction monitors, the heart rate monitor. He also put in a fetal scalp electrode onto her head. Um, and then they also broke my water to try and get labor going. He was comfortable with giving me a chance to have a vaginal delivery because I wasn't that bad yet. And my baby wasn't either. And since I was already dilated, my body was already kind of preparing for it. So, and then they got me epidural really quickly, even though I wasn't that dilated because they wanted to keep my pain management low to prevent my blood pressure from spiking. Um, and being on mag is awful. It's like the worst flu you've ever had on steroids. You're just so hot. You're so sleepy. You're not really coherent. You don't really care what's going on. And so I labored there for a few hours. And meanwhile, my husband's just kind of walking back and forth, just kind of scared of his mind. Like what the heck is going on? You know, or wasn't supposed to be like this. So eventually my doctor comes in and my um, baby, she was, her heart rate was decelerating. And so he came in and kind of, he gave me a sense of I had a choice if I wanted to keep going to delivery vaginally or C-section, but I knew the C-section rate at my hospital was so low and his rate was so low as well. And the way he kind of explained it was like, okay, we could let you, you know, labor for a few more hours, but it'll probably be C-section either way, or we can do it right now. He kind of gave me a sense that I had a choice, but it really (laughs) wasn't a choice. It was, we're having to do this now or later. So if you want any choice kind of thing. So we consented to it and it just ended up being a verbal consent. I didn't sign any papers because of how emergent it became after that because her heart rate just plummeted. And so the nurse quickly shaved me. They put me on uh, the hairnet for my hair. And then I was wheeled into the OR within like 20 minutes of the decision. Um, and after that, I was really scared. I just, I didn't really know what was going on. It wasn't really coherent. They did give me a spinal block because I had already had an epidural. So it was a quick and easy switch of medicines for them. Um, And they just did. They had her out really quickly. I'd never got to see what she looked like. I just was able to hear her. 
And the whole time I was asking, like, before she was born is, will she cry? Will she go into the NICU? Like, I know she's considered a preemie, but she's also 35 weeks, you know? But they wouldn't give me a direct answer. And I later learned after looking through my medical records that her heart rate was plummeting really bad. Um, and they weren't sure if she was going to make it out alive. And my heart rate, or not my heart rate, my blood pressure was sky high too. So they just really, they didn't want to make any promises or tell me anything. Uh, the OR had a window straight into the NICU. So as soon as she was born, they put her straight to the NICU. So I never even got a peep of what she looked like. I just heard her and I heard her scream. And that was, that was the best sound I've ever heard because she was actually alive. Because I kind of prepared myself that I wasn't going to hear anything that they would have to like resuscitate her or anything like that. So they finished up the surgery and my husband was able to go see her in the NICU. And then I, I don't remember this, but my husband tells me that I was then wheeled to a recovery room. And I really have vague memories of the whole first night after surgery because I had surgery around 4 p.m. or so. I really don't remember much. I really remember the world just kind of feeling like it was spinning. And I was feeling really sick and hot and nauseous because I was still hooked to magnesium. I remember nurses coming in and trying to help me stand up out of bed. And that was horrible. And I couldn't do it. And I remember feeling so hungry. And some nurses came in and tried to give me a um, some jam on toast. But I took one bite and I just like wanted to pick my guts out. It was so bad. And then about a half hour later, they came and like, oh, I'm so sorry. We weren't supposed to give you, you know, real food because you're still on magnesium. You can only have liquid diet. And that is in case I started to seize. That way I wouldn't choke on whatever food I had in my stomach. And then eventually I was moved into the mother and baby unit. I really don't remember when that time frame was or anything like that. But I was still feeling really awful being on the magnesium. My husband, every three hours, was going into the NICU uh, doing her cares. And the first time I saw her was the next morning, and that was only over FaceTime and pictures that my husband showed me. I hadn't gotten to see her yet. And I just was kind of surreal, like, this is my kid, this is, you know, my baby. And I wasn't really quite understanding what was going on. But because I was in the mother-baby unit, I could hear all the other babies in the unit. The lactation consultant was coming in trying to make me, you know, pump because I expressed that I wanted to breastfeed. Obviously, that didn't happen. So she was trying to teach me how to use a pump and nothing would come out because I was so sick. I was so stressed. I was so exhausted. You know, everything was against me being able to produce milk. Like my body's main purpose at that point was trying to keep me alive rather than produce milk. So 27 hours later, they are able to get me off of magnesium and I was unhooked from magnesium and I was able to have my first real food, which was a turkey sandwich and some French fries, which was so good. I still couldn't eat much of it, though, because of the the pain meds made me so nauseous. They were just too hard of a pain med for me. But I didn't know that at the time, and I was just so nauseous. And a nurse and my husband helped me roll off the bed onto a wheelchair, and they wheeled me over to the NICU. And the first time I saw her was 27 hours after she was born. And I just bawled because I couldn't believe that this was my baby, and it was hard. I mean, the first time I saw her... She was in an incubator 
And at that point, I had only seen those in like pictures and movies. Like this is the kind of thing that happens to other people. This doesn't happen to me. It wasn't supposed to happen to me. And her NICU nurse took her out of the incubator and put her on my chest uh, underneath my hospital gown and put a blanket on and just kind of explained, uh, you know, she was born really small. She already had an NG tube at that point because she wouldn't eat. They gave her a couple hours to see if she would do the sucking motion on her own because the sucking reflex, I believe, isn't developed until 36 weeks. So because she was really close to 36 weeks, they were trying to see if she'd be able to do it. And she couldn't. And I just held her and just cried. Like, I just couldn't believe that this was the baby I was carrying the last 35 weeks. And I just felt so awful. Like, I failed because she's in the NICU because my body failed. I failed to grow her like she should have. And that's all I felt. And eventually I had to put her down because she had to be back in the incubator so she wasn't um, too cold. And I went back to my room. And I just cried and I just couldn't stop. I cried about everything. I cried about how horrible of experience it was, how lonely I felt, how people were like commenting on my Facebook post about, you know, my baby being born about, oh, you're so strong, Courtney. She's so strong. You know, God knows what you're going through and things like that. But they were, they were empty words to me that didn't help. I needed someone to tell me that it was hard what I was going through and it was difficult. and. It just flat out sucked, but I just had so much toxic positivity all around me that no one was really understanding the severity of the situation. And maybe a lot of it was because I kind of, my husband and I kind of kept it to ourselves more, but because we were experiencing it as it was happening, you know, our priority wasn't telling family members or friends exactly what was happening. It was just trying to survive. And that night, my grandma, who lived in town, came and visited me, and she just talked to me, and I just, I just cried, and I just really wanted my mom. My mom lived out of state, and since I had my baby unexpectedly early, she couldn't make it in time. Um, She was able to come the next day after my grandma called her to tell her about my poor emotional state. But I just, I just kept crying and crying, and I couldn't stop. Like, I just was crying so much, and I didn't really understand what I was crying about. I was just sad and at no point during my stay did any nurse or any lactation consultant or anyone like talk to me about what I was feeling or the depression I was feeling and that it was okay to feel I was feeling because more than once a nurse would come in and I was in the middle of bawling and they would just kind of just brush past and just ignore it and not really acknowledge it and I just because like I I don't know I don't know what I'm going through this is (laughs) I'm just sad And so the next day I woke up and I wasn't able to see at all. My eyes had swollen so bad. It looked like I went like nine rounds with Rocky Balboa. Like it was just swollen and I couldn't open them. I couldn't see. So I called out to my husband and he comes over and he's like, uh, (laughs) what? They called my night nurse that was that night. She comes in and looks at it and she's like, oh, well, you know, I called your doctor and he says it's fine. He'll just look at it in the morning. And I'm like, what? I, I can't see. My eyes are so swollen. I can't see. Like, what's going on? And they wouldn't do it. And she's like, well, maybe, you know, maybe your husband would be willing to come into your hospital bed with you and just kind of comfort you until morning. I was like, are you, what? <laughs> but I'm not crying, right? And that makes my eyes even more swollen because when you cry, your eyes kind of swell up. 
So my husband comes to my hospital bed and he just kind of comforts me. And we are religious. So we prayed of like, you know, help kind of thing. And this sucks. And the next day morning, my doctor comes in and he looks in my eyes. He kind of pokes around at it. He's like, well, does it hurt? I said, well, it doesn't hurt, but it's like really uncomfortable and I can't see. He's like, huh, I've never seen that before. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that's real comforting from this high risk doctor that he's never seen something like this before. They just told me to just, you know, this is your body's way of telling you to relax. And sometimes people with preeclampsia, they just swell severely in weird places. And I just end up being really severe in my face and my eyes. And so I just laid low the next day. They gave me some ice packs and I just laid in the hospital bed the whole day. And eventually it swelled down. I was also drinking a ton of water to try and pee out all the fluid. And it, it was just horrible. <laughs> um, but once it eventually settled down the next middle of the night, I was able to go see my daughter in the NICU again and try and do some cares. Overall, I stayed in the hospital for six days. It was because of my blood pressure. It wouldn't settle down. It wasn't getting at a level that they were comfortable releasing me on just medication and so once I got released we just went home and showered and then we went straight back to the hospital to go back into the NICU um, and she was just kind of a grower and a feeder in the NICU she never really had any surgeries or anything like that her only struggle was learning how to eat because she just wouldn't use a sucking reflex and they didn't want her to waste a lot of calories and energy on it to grow because she was only born at four pounds and 17 inches. She was really tiny. So she, that gave her the diagnosis of IUGR. And so they were playing around with high calorie formula. And if I would pre pump breast milk of how much of the high calorie formula to fortify my breast milk to make it to the right calories. And so for the next couple days until her 15th day in the NICU, we just would wake up in the morning, we would go to the NICU, do all her cares and everything like that. And then we would go home at midnight, cry ourselves to sleep, just to do it to the next day. And we didn't really have much support because we lived in a college town. A lot of our friends were college people. They just, they don't understand. You don't understand until you're in a situation like that of how awful it is. My family was really helpful to us, even though they lived out of state. My parents FaceTimed us multiple times a day to see how we were doing and just to talk. But for my husband, he had absolutely no support from anyone in his family, or really any of his friends. Like, we're just kind of left on our own. And so when the 15th day came around, we were able to take her home. My husband was able to take off work the whole time I was sick up until that day. And the day we took her home, he had to go back to work. So then I was left at home with this little baby that had all of these needs, and I had no idea what the heck just happened to me. I never had a moment to just kind of sit down and process what happened to me. And unless you've been in this situation, you don't understand, and you can't judge uh, mom for feeling this way, but I, I hated her. And it was more of like, not like her as a person, it just, she was a reminder of everything bad that had happened to me. She was the byproduct of me getting preeclampsia. She was the byproduct of me having an emergency C-section. Like she was just the byproduct of everything that bad had happened. And I was supposed to just take care of this little human when I was dying on the inside and my body was falling apart and I couldn't do anything for myself. 
I couldn't shower by myself until I was about two months postpartum because I was just so weak physically from all the bed rest I had beforehand. And I also couldn't get up and move until like three days post-op. And so my body was just trashed. And not to mention my high blood pressure. That makes you really, it made me really faint when I was in too hot and too humid of places. And I would go to my doctor about once a week for a blood pressure check. And my blood pressure would lower. He would lower my dosage of blood pressure medicine. And my daughter didn't have a whole lot of appointments because she was just a girl in her feeder. She was just small. So she really had only early intervention. And then you would see her doctor every once in a while for weight checks and things like that. So by eight weeks postpartum, I was completely weaned off of blood pressure medication. And I just was at home with this little baby, just lonely and just hating my life and just wishing things were different. I couldn't believe what had happened to me. I wasn't really sure what I was feeling, what the name was. So when I went back to my doctor about, I think it was about nine weeks postpartum, maybe 10, to get on birth control and mentioned asking, you know, are the baby blues supposed to last this long? And they asked me like, well, what what are you feeling? So I explained that I was having panic attacks and I couldn't sleep at night because I was terrified that she was just going to die. Like I would have to physically get out of bed, even though we lived in a one tiny one bedroom apartment. She was in her room. I had to physically get up out of my bed and put my hand on her chest to make sure it was going up and down because I was just convinced she was just going to die. Because I mean, history told me that she's this really fragile being that something bad could happen. I was just terrified of everything. And this was pre-COVID times, but I was hand sanitizing everything. I was washing my hands. No one was allowed to touch her until they like hand sanitized and basically drenched themselves in bleach. Like I was just, I was terrified of flus. I was terrified of RSVs. I was just convinced that something bad was going to happen. And I was just so depressed. I was just crying all the time. And so they kind of like, okay, well, we'll just kind of work on these things. Let's think of some goals and maybe to work towards to kind of get you back, you know, have 10 minutes away from baby to just do what you want. So I started working on those things and I would kind of report back each week. Eventually, I'm like, things aren't helping, you know. Um, my doctor did offer me to write me a prescription. But at the time, I was like, I don't want a prescription. Like, I want to be able to do this on my own. Which looking back, I wish I would have accepted the help of prescription then. It would have saved me a lot of months of misery. It would have saved me a lot of time. So I got referred to a therapist and I saw a therapist and the way that therapist practiced was just kind of letting me talk about what happened. And then she would make kind of comments of like, oh, that's sad. That's hard. But didn't really do any internal work with me. But at the time, I guess that was kind of what I needed. I just needed someone to listen to me, to hear me talk about what had happened because no one really asked me outside of that of what had happened and how I was actually doing. So I saw her for a few months and then I was feeling better and I was fine. And we were moving out from that college town into a different city anyway. So I stopped seeing her because I felt like, you know, I'm good enough. I'm fine again. So come January 2020, we get into a new apartment and my husband starts a job that he didn't graduate in, didn't wanted. And life was just kind of miserable for both of us. And then all the COVID crap started happening. And it was just very triggering for me because I'm like, I already spent the last year basically in isolation. I have to do this again. Like, 
my baby hasn't really done very much. Like everything I kind of imagined of like, you know, going to library story times, having like little play dates and things like that. When I finally felt comfortable to do all this stuff with her, I, it got taken away from me and I couldn't do any of that. So I kind of spiraled back into a depression, but didn't really do anything with it. At this point of time, my husband, everything just kind of finally hit him of what had happened of, oh my gosh, my wife did almost die. Oh my gosh, I did almost lose my kid. Oh my gosh, my life just sucks. And so it took a long time for me to pressure him to do it, but he eventually started therapy with his therapist and he really liked her. And so then she suggested doing some family therapy sessions. So I started going with him and just bringing our daughter with us. And that really changed things for me. And that along with getting on an antidepressant, it really kind of let me jump over that hump I couldn't do on my own of realizing that life doesn't always suck. These were just the cards I was dealt. And it does suck, but I can move on from it. It doesn't have to, you know, make me depressed for the rest of my life. And so that therapist really worked on a lot of, she specializes in inner child so with both of us, she kind of saw us separately on different occasions. We really worked on inner child of like, why did this, you know, experience really traumatize you? Like, what is your inner child telling you and things like that? And that has really helped us kind of move past that. And along with starting my blog from the support of my husband, I was able to get my story out there. So a lot of the loneliness I felt is no one in my real life ever had a premature baby. No one in my real life ever had preeclampsia. No one in my real life ever had bed rest or high-risk pregnancy or anything like that. And so I felt like I was the only person in the world to ever experience something like this. So once I started my blog and my Instagram and started kind of putting my story out there into the universe, I was able to connect with other women. And that really helped me kind of heal the pieces back together of realizing I'm not the only person in the world has been through something like this. Other women understand what I'm going through. And that was really healing for me. And that's kind of what, how I'm doing what I'm doing today. And it's just hard healing from a traumatic birth. It's just hard. I'm almost two years out. Her birthday's next month, but I'm, I still have moments where I break down and cry because it's just hard. It, this wasn't how it was supposed to be. You know, I'm a first time mom. This is my first pregnancy to go past eight weeks. Like it was supposed to be what I had dreamed about, what you see in movies, what you see your friends doing. And it was absolutely nothing like that. And it's really hard. <laughs> but that's just kind of the short synopsis <laughs> of everything that happened. Yeah, well, I just want to first, you know, thank you for sharing this story. And like you said, sharing our stories and really getting that message out there. I think, you know, not only is healing for ourselves, but you are helping so many people, you, you know, hear that they are not alone, that this is not just them. And like you said, maybe you don't have anyone in your immediate family or your immediate friends group that is doing that. But when we search for it, there is that potential of finding somebody that can at least have a similar story. No one is going to be able to relate to exactly what you went through. And no one is ever going to be able to know what you personally have been through. But you can relate on so many levels. And you can say like, 
it sucked together and this was so hard and you can really have that feeling of okay like this person gets me and I think that's just amazing and I think it also helps to share your story and to share what you're saying so that people that might have a friend or a family member that had preeclampsia, that had an emergency C-section, might be able to be like, oh, maybe I shouldn't say like, oh, you're so strong and you can do this and things like that, but rather sit there and listen to how they actually feel about it. Because I think that is so much of a misunderstanding of what happens. You know, you try to relate your own perspective and your own feeling of, of how they're feeling to the situation instead of just sitting there with them and listening to how they actually feel about it. So I think that's such a huge thing in itself to be able to just be like, how did that make you feel? What was that like for you? And I think that makes such a different conversation for anybody going through something. If you don't understand what it's like, ask them what it was like. And then just listen to them. And I, th- I think that goes such a long way, especially in a postpartum state of, of mass emotions and massive shifts in somebody's life. So yeah, I don't like how has you telling your story helped friends and family be able to relate to you more? Or what have they said since you've kind of started this journey of sharing your story? That's a good question. It's kind of hard to say because I don't really want to put words in other people's mouths. But I do know like with my parents, my mom, she was one of the lucky few who never had a miscarriage. She had four pregnancies, four kids, and they all like stayed alive. She's just one of the lucky few. And same. So my parents, they just kind of they just didn't get it. Like when I lost my first baby, they're like, I'm sorry, that's hard, you know, but at least you can get pregnant. And that's what a lot of people say, That that's not what you should say. And that's not what they want to hear, you know, because they did lose a baby. That was a baby that was wanted, but they just don't understand. And the more I've kind of opened about how horrible it is and how traumatic it was and how I'm still dealing with it, the kind of things I've talked about with my therapist, I've shared with my parents, they just kind of go, oh, like it, they just start kind of talking to me differently. Like they're like, yeah, you did experience trauma. And I talk to them a lot about like, if I want another kid, because I do want another child, but I don't want to be pregnant ever again. And I'm not really sure if I want to go adoption. I'm just not really sure what route I want to go. So I've talked to them about that. My dad actually looked at me and was like, well, you can't logic your way out of trauma. You just got to decide if you're willing to experience something like that again. And that just kind of hit me of like, wow, they understand now. They understand that I did experience a traumatic experience and it changed my life. And how I've been more opened with it is I had a girl I knew in high school who actually ended up having preeclampsia about two months after I gave birth. And she messaged me and she's like, well, thank you for, you know, being open. And at this time, I wasn't all the way open with my story, but I was enough saying this is what I experienced and, you know, it sucked. She's like, thank you, because you sharing about your daughter's NICU stay, it helped me get through the day. Her daughter was a 32-weeker, I believe, so a little bit earlier than mine. She goes, because your daughter survived, I, I had hope the NICU wasn't as bad as it could have been. And that kind of meant a lot to me because that's what I wanted. That's all I wanted. I wanted someone to do that to me. I wanted someone to do that. 
And I went searching through the internet for anyone who had preeclampsia and I really couldn't find much. And if I did, it were people who had like preeclampsia at 39 weeks and then they just gave birth the next day, which is bad. It is bad. All preeclampsia is bad, but it was nothing like what I had went through. And so that kind of helped my, I only feel like the only one. And so over on Instagram, when I started opening up more and sharing more, I would have women message me and go, I just got diagnosed with preeclampsia. You know, thank you. Or I just gave birth a month ago. Like, thank you. It's nice to know I'm not the only one. And that, that heals me. It heals me to know that I am that person for someone of that person I needed two years ago. Like I needed that person two years ago and I didn't get it. And that would have made everything I went through a lot easier if I had a person like me. Yeah, I I think, you know, sending that message of hope is really such an amazing feeling. And no matter what the outcome is for other people and stuff, still showing them, you know, your journey and what was possible and where you're at now. I think speaks so much to somebody that might be initially going through it. You know, maybe they, they have their child in the NICU right now and they're listening to this and they're saying, wow, look at her. She's, she's two years postpartum almost. And, and look at where she's gotten and, you know, being able to have that place for somebody to find connection and find other people, um, that are close to a situation um, and having that relatability. I think, like you said, you know, you wish that you would have had that person two years ago, that you wish that there could have been, you know, somewhere that you could have found. So what do you hope to get out there and how do you feel you're, you're finding those people or reaching out to those because, you know, like you said, those, those first few hours, like you were so dazed and, and confused of where to go and what to do. And so how would you hope that this information could get to somebody, you know, like a friend or a family listening to it that might have had somebody that just went through this or, or how do you hope that that new mom to really be able to to find that strength or find that hope for themselves? Yeah. So once I started my Instagram, I was able to find other accounts. Um, there's an account called Help Syndrome, where she shares a lot of facts about preeclampsia, long-term studies, and also Help Syndrome. And that account kind of really helped me in my healing because she does a lot of research on her own about all the studies that has ever been done in preeclampsia or help syndrome or eclampsia. And she shares those and she's kind of a, um, a resource for a lot of survivors to kind of connect with each other. Over the past few months, I've been able to connect with other women who have been through similar stories, other ones who've been through worse or even not as bad as me. And this community is just kind of growing. Um, next month is preeclampsia awareness month. And so I'm connecting with a lot of other different accounts and on Instagram, and we're just trying to scream it from the rooftops. That is preeclampsia awareness month. And most people don't know what the heck preeclampsia is unless they know someone who's been through it or they're in the medical space. And even then, even if they're in the medical space, they may not know if they're not in OBGYN or women's healthcare. 
And there's a lot of long-term effects that a lot of people don't know. They don't know that like we're three, four times more high risk to develop heart disease or have heart attacks, especially if we still have high blood pressure afterwards. A lot of women are stuck with chronic high blood pressure after preeclampsia, even if they never had anything before. I'm one of the lucky ones that didn't. My blood pressure is totally fine. Like it had never been high in its life. But it happens to a lot of women that they're stuck with chronic high blood pressure because they had a baby. And that's not fair. It just isn't. And there's not a lot of research out there to help women who are going through this, to help them emotionally, to help them physically, help them mentally. Like there's no, for a C-section, you don't get physical therapy. You know, if you got a knee surgery, you sure as heck would have physical therapy. But for whatever reason, C-section isn't bad enough to have physical therapy. And that's just ridiculous. The woman healthcare space needs to change postpartum. You know, you see your doctor so many times while you're pregnant, but postpartum, if you have a completely normal pregnancy, you only see them at the six-week checkup. And that's not right. You know, there's so much that can happen afterwards. And women need that support, especially if they went through a traumatic birth. They need that mental health support because the trauma might not hit you at six weeks. It might hit you at a year. It might hit you at two years or it might hit you when you're pregnant again and you realize how traumatic it was. And that's just not, that's not fair to women. Yeah, I completely agree. And then, so, you know, you had expressed that you had this, this feeling of almost hate for your daughter soon after words. And she was a, a sign of everything that you had experienced traumatically and whatnot. How has that shifted now? And, and what have you done to really work on that relationship with her? That's a good question. Um, a lot of it was kind of my own therapy and just kind of working through those emotions and realizing that it wasn't her she was just someone I could put the anger towards. For a while, it kind of shifted to my husband because he's one that got me pregnant, you know? And it kind of shifted to that. And then it shifted to a higher power because, you know, you have all this control. Why did you let this happen to me? It did. It had a lot of months of soul searching of, and since I'm religious, doing a lot of praying and their therapy of just realizing this was just the cards I was dealt and it sucked. I can let it make me angry. I can let it, you know, ruin my life or I can just kind of move on from it. I am far past from being completely moved on from it. I don't know if I ever will because it was a huge turning point in my life because I gained a lot more empathy for other people, even if they didn't experience preeclampsia, like a baby loss or they was stillborn. Like I have a lot more empathy for those people than I ever did before. And for her relationship, it's just watching her grow and realizing that she was a miracle that reading over my medical records and realizing that, you know, her cord was so tiny. Her umbilical cord was half the size of my pinky. Like it was such a tiny cord and the placenta was trashed. It was so small and it, she shouldn't have lived. She shouldn't have made it past, but she did. And she's thriving and, and anyone could look at her and they wouldn't realize she was born premature. They wouldn't realize she was born so small. And just seeing the miracle that she is and being grateful that I'm here to raise her, to be with her because it could have easily gone the other way. It's kind of when I shift my focus into more being a woe is me attitude to being a, wow, I am here. I'm here, you know, this, my daughter, I'm here to raise her. I'm here to 
speak. She's here to help me. She's here to let me be her mom. And because it could have easily gone the other way. And I'm lucky that it didn't. And every day is a gift. And she might be my only child. And that's even more of a gift of this precious gift I've been given to raise. And I adore her now. I don't have any hate towards her, which is great because that's so awful to feel. You feel like the worst human on the planet when you feel that. No, I love that, you know, you have gotten to this place and that you are able to appreciate everything and see it as a gift. And I I do hope that, you know, others that are feeling kind of like stuck or low or, or sad or in that, you know, it's hard to get out of that spot of this all sucks. I can't believe this happened to me or like, why did this happen? And blame people or, or, you know, like you said, like, you know, why did you do this? Or why did this happen? So, you know, I think that you have come to such a shift in, in realization is, is so powerful. And, you know, days are gonna suck and things are going to be hard. But to hear, you know, stories like yours of, of how that's really transformed and the transformation that you have been able to achieve, I think, um, is something that a lot of people need to hear. So again, I thank you so much, you know, for sharing your story and and telling so much and, and everything that you're doing, because I think more people need to share how they're feeling and express how they're feeling, because I, I think that that helps others understand tremendously. Yeah, well, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to share. Do you want to leave us with how we can reach you and where we can find you? Yeah, um, so my blog is www.knockonmotherhood.com. My Instagram handle is knockonmotherhood, and that's where I'm most active. I do um, have a Facebook page that I post to, and it's just whatever I post from Instagram onto there. Uh, My podcast can be found on the blog as well. Well, thank you again so much. And I don't know if you have anything else that you wanted to add or end with. No, no, this is great. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share. I I love sharing <laughs> because it's something I needed other people to do. Well, this wraps up yet another episode of Entering Motherhood. I hope that you have found this episode helpful. And if you liked it, please share it with others who might also benefit from this information. If there's anything that you'd like to know more about, or maybe you know someone who'd like to be on the show, please visit my website, enteringmotherhood.com. I'm so thrilled to be going on this journey with you and getting the amazing opportunity to help moms during this postpartum experience. You can also now find us on Instagram and Facebook at Entering Motherhood.